Because Harry Potter is for little kids, too. This is MuggleCast, episode 40, for May 21st, 2006. Oh, good job, Ryan. CYGoDaddy.com is the number one domain registrar worldwide. Now, with your domain registration, you'll get hosting, a free blog, complete email, and much more. Plus, as a MuggleCast listener, enter code RON, that's R-O-N, when you check out and get your .com domain name for just $6.95 a year. Get your piece of the internet today at GoDaddy.com. Hello, Potterites. Welcome to UggleCast, your Harry Potter podcast for the fans, by the fans, where you bring everything from Dobby Socks to your thoughts and a little bit of Spy on Sparks. <laughs> so that's what we're doing this week. I'm Andrew Sims. I'm Kevin Steck. I'm Laura Thompson. And joining us this week, Jess Costin. Without further ado, let's go to MuggleCast's own Micah Tannenbaum for a look at this past week's news. J.K. Rowling, Stephen King, and John Irving will be holding a press conference on August 1st in New York City, a few hours prior to the first benefit performance of their charity reading event. The conference will take place at 10 a.m. at Radio City Music Hall. Several actors and actresses from the Harry Potter films have been nominated for the 60th Annual Tony Awards, including Rafe Fiennes and Jim Dale. For a complete list, head over to MuggleMet.com. The winners will be announced on June 11th on CBS. Reuters reported earlier this week that the Chronicles of Narnia DVD has sold 11 million copies, beating Goblet of Fire, which holds just under 10 million sales. Of interest, Narnia was released on DVD nearly a month after Goblet of Fire went on sale. And don't forget, you can find complete details on the fourth film's digital video disc on our Goblet of Fire DVD page. According to a report released by the book industry study group, publishers generated $34.6 billion in 2005, up 5.9% from the previous year. 3.1 billion books were sold last year, up 3.8% from 2004. The strongest growth occurred in juvenile books, which sold $3.34 billion in 2005. The release of the sixth book in the Harry Potter series, Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, accounted for the majority of the boom. At the National Press Club's Audio Awards in Washington, D.C. Friday night, Half-Blood Prince was entered into the Audio Publishers Association's brand new Hall of Fame. Half-Blood Prince is the very first book to have been awarded with this prestigious honor. The book was narrated by Jim Dale for Listening Library. As part of her 80th birthday celebration, the Queen of Britain will hold a massive party at Buckingham Palace on June 25th to celebrate children's literature, both new and old. J.K. Rowling, along with several characters from renowned children's novels, will be in attendance. Joel will read from the sixth Harry Potter book before a show featuring dozens of the best-loved children's characters. The Daily Telegraph has opened an exciting competition in which you can win a ticket to the party, but you must be British and age 4 to 14 to enter. Dan Radcliffe has made Teen People's watch list of one of the 25 hottest stars under 25 for 2007. The page includes a small note about Dan's new film, December Boys, and the fifth Harry Potter film, Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. And several of the stars from Harry Potter films have been named in Netscape's list of 15 of the UK's finest. Ray Fiennes, Voldemort, came in at number 8, and Dan Radcliffe, Emma Watson, and Rupert Grint were as one ranked ninth on the list. Clive Owen and Kira Knightley took the top two spots. Sony Pictures Classics has purchased the North American film rights to Rupert Grint's new film, Driving Lessons. No release date has been set. And finally, last October, the flying Ford Anglia used in Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets was mysteriously stolen from Southwest Film Studios in St. Agnes. On Wednesday, the stolen car turned up. I'm sorry about the rearview mirror. At Carnbria Castle, a 14th century stone twin tower fortress near Fallmouth, Cornwall. That's all the news for this May 21st, 2006 edition of MuggleCast. Back to the show. So we have a new face in the crowd this week. Jess, uh, you're new to this. What do you do? What exactly do you do around MuggleNet? Go ahead and introduce yourself. Well, um, 
I used to work in the fan fiction section for over a year, and since then I've been doing work on MuggleNet's gallery and other just various pages, whatever I can scrounge that the other staffers haven't already taken. Gallery, huh? What gallery? What gallery? What unspeakable gallery? (laughs) Yeah, the one that doesn't load on all the pages. You heard it here first. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we have a few announcements for for you this week. Go ahead and buy your MuggleCast t-shirt. If you haven't bought one yet, go buy one now. Buy buy 12. Buy one for each each member of your family, at least five of your friends. Just go out and buy your MuggleCast t-shirt. And we have a good reason that you need to buy one, though. Right, Andrew? Well, right. It's really important that everyone uh, purchases a t-shirt by uh, Tuesday, <coughs> my birthday, uh, because Muggle- National <laughs> Wear Your MuggleCast t-shirt day is coming up on June 2nd. What does National Wear Your MuggleCast t-shirt day mean? Well, two weeks ago, I explained to everyone that I went to Congress, and I got this new bill signed that states... Uh, June 2nd of every year is now National Wear Your MuggleCast T-Shirt Day. So, everyone needs to purchase their T-shirts and take a picture of yourself wearing it on June 2nd. And then we'll post them on the site and we'll randomly pick five of them. And then they will win our Lumos 2006 shirt before it even comes out. Well, before Lumos even happens. Yeah. So... <laughs> It's yep, really, yep. really, really cool shirt, and uh, we're really so, excited about it. So, yeah, everybody go out and participate. Take a picture of yourself wearing your MuggleCast t-shirt. Tuesday is the you deadline if you want to get them by uh, June 2nd. May 26th is the complete last last chance deadline. But chances are, if you order after the 23rd, you might not get the shirts in time. So there's no guarantee. Right. Remember that. Okay, well, I think that wraps up the announcements. It's time for this week's listenery buttles. Polka flutes. How do you say it? Pokey Poke flutes. Flute. Pokey flutes. Pokey flutes wake Snorlax. They don't put them to sleep. Andrew, you care to explain? <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, I do, Ben. Uh, <laughs> you were on last week's show, weren't you? Uh, I think I think I got put to sleep. I don't know. <laughs> I don't. Re- I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> you don't remember the pokey flutes? You were. Oh, whatever. Anyway, so uh, last week I brought up that I, I was I was testing my Pokemon knowledge by saying that uh, the Pokey Flute would be useful in a situation with Fluffy. Gotta catch them all. I said something like gotta that. Gotta catch them all. Yeah. Gotta <laughs> catch them all. Got... Oh, I can't remember. Forget it. <laughs> so so um, I said that Pokey Flutes put Snorlax to sleep, but actually Pokey Flutes awake Snorlax. I can't believe I screwed oh, that geez. up. I'm really sorry. I can't even begin to count how many emails we got on that this week. <laughs> so thanks to everyone who emailed in with all your Pokemon knowledge. Yep. Um, I should have quizzed my little brother and my neighbor that goes Pika Pika running around the neighborhood for some re- weird reason. Okay, well, let's move on to our next listener rebuttal. Hi, my name is Melissa. I'm 16 and from Montreal, Canada. I was listening to episode 39 earlier, and while you guys were talking about how Harry wouldn't be able to remember anything about Godric's Hollow, a sudden realization hit me. Harry has said before that he only remembers a blinding green light. Now I'm sure about th- now I'm not sure about this, but what if Harry takes the pensive, concentrates really hard on that memory, and tries to extract it? Do you think he'd be able to see a bit about what went on that night 15 years ago? And if he did, do you think there might might be something that would help him find a Horcrux. Well, I think that if Harry is able to extract the memory, that I th- oh, the preface this a little bit. 
psychologists say that the memories do exist and somewhere in your brain that it's just like channeling them and being able to remember them. So if Harry's able to uh, somehow suck the memory out with his wand or whatever and put it into a pensive, then he probably will be able to look at it from a new perspective that he's never seen before. In terms of helping him find, helping him find it, that helping him find a Horcrux, I'm not so sure. What do you guys think? Uh, you pretty much summed up my thoughts. I'd have to say I agree with that. Yeah. Well, what about the Horcrux yeah. part of it? I mean, it's possible, but... I think that would be too easy. They may some, they may some yeah. clues, but I mean, not, it's not like you just see, oh my gosh, like there's a, a, uh, one of my dirty diapers. That's a Horcrux, you know? Yeah, but at, yeah, the, yeah, that's at the same time, how much perspective does a baby have on a situation? Because he remembers a blinding green light, That's but true. he's in a crib. So all he remembers is a crib. Yeah. How will that help That's true. him? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't, point. I don't really see it playing too much uh, of a factor. The Horcrux is in Unless the crib. Unless Voldemort turned yeah. Harry's crib into a Horcrux. <laughs> oh, yeah. There you go. Thanks a lot. You guys are the best. Keep up with the good work. Melissa. Okay, our next listener rebuttal is from Caroline from Missouri. Mugglecasters, last week you talked about if Lily and James knew about the prophecy. On page 204 of Prisoner of Azkaban, where Fudge is talking to the three broomsticks, Fudge says, Not many people are aware that the Potters knew you-know-who was after them. Dumbledore, who who was, of course, working tirelessly against you-know-who, had a number of useful spies. One of them one of them tipped him off, and he lured James and Lily at once. He advised them to go into hiding. So Lily and so James and Lily might not have, have might not have known the entire prophecy, but they did know that they were marked and went into hiding because of the prophecy itself, not just because they had survived Voldemort three times. Thanks, Caroline. She, so there we go. That answers last week's uh, sure is a good point though. question that we were asking ourselves. Yeah. What's well, I mean, sure is a good point about how they knew that the reason they went into hiding was because of the prophecy in an indirect way. Not just because they had already survived Voldemort. Oh, so yeah. So thanks for that, Caroline. And now moving on to the next listener rebuttal. This comes from Lauren from Long Island. Kevin used to live there. In episode 39, yes, you did. were talking about Godric's Hollow and why Harry would go, would go there and how he knew where it was. In Half-Blood Prince, the, in the chapter entitled The White Tomb, Harry says, for me, it started there. All of it. I've just got a feeling I need to go there. And I can visit my parents' graves. I'd like that. I think he is just guessing that they are buried there and, and hoping that also. I don't think he hopes to find a Horcrux, just that he feels he should start his search where all of this started. Thanks. I love you guys. And girl. See, Laura? Aww. You were left out. I feel left. <laughs> but anyways. But, yeah, I agree with Lauren 100%. Um, I think that's yeah, she, pretty much what right. a couple of us were saying last week, so it's really good to see that reflected. There was there was one dissenter in the group, Aww, but, but he's not with us this no, week. we love Aww, Eric. Poor Eric. Okay, well, that sums up the listener rebuttals. Starting next week, we're going to try something new with our listener rebuttals. After listening to this week's show, send in a voice rebuttal for us to play in our new quote-unquote rebuttal montage. You can send these in by Skyping the username MuggleCast or calling our hotline at one two one eight twenty M A G I C. Please send these... Please send these to us in the form of a comment rather than a question. Rebuttal questions can still be sent in via email to mugglecast at staff.mugglenet.com. So, yeah. So, Andrew, we reached a milestone this week, this show. Makes me so sad. We did? Yes. It's almost time for a midlife crisis. I'm thinking. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 40. I'm 40. I don't know. I think it happened earlier this week. It must be a sign we're yeah. going to 80. We're 40. 
<laughs> 40 episodes. I remember we thought 10 was a lot when me and Kevin were like, yeah, we made it 10 episodes. Yeah. We made it so far. <laughs> oh. It's 40 true. weeks is a lot. I mean, we started this show back on August 4th, and we skipped two weeks. So, what do you guys think? We're going to keep going strong. <laughs> I think we're old. It's fun. Well, I'm only 31. When did you start, Laura? <laughs> episode? Like, nine. You started on episode nine? <laughs> or eight, oh, really? something like that. So, well, I know Eric came I'm in on, like, yet. four or five, and Jamie came in. On four or five, he came at the same time. Yeah, he came at the same time as Eric. Jeez, it's, it's been it's been quite the ride, you know. And I don't know if we've mentioned it on the show yet, but uh, MuggleCast fifty is perfectly timed with our one year anniversary of releasing the first show, which, like I said, was on August fourth. Well, well, theoretically, it should be it should be um, fifty two <laughs> if it, if it was a year. Yeah, well, it's going to be our fiftieth episode because we skipped two weeks, but. Uh, the plan is that during Vegas, since we're all going to be there, me, Laura, Kevin, Eric, uh, Jamie. Oh, just forget about me. Just forget about me. <laughs> I was getting to you. I was getting to you. We're all going to meet up in a little life. room, kick all the leaky and other MuggleNet people out. Sorry, Jess. Are you Are you coming, Jess? Yep, yep, I'm coming. She's rooming Sweet. with me. We'll be there. It's going to be awesome. We're all going to gather into one little room. We're going to kick all the MuggleNet and Leaky people out. And we're going to record our one-year anniversary special, episode 50. It's great timing. Only 10 more episodes. So we just wanted to thank everyone for making it through 40 episodes of us blabbing. And uh, here's the 40 more. We're going to keep... Here's the 40 more. My next 40 episodes, I'm going to watch my weight. Eat a few more salads, not stay up so late. <laughs> Sorry, you won't. Sorry, I got, I got a bit carried away there. Without further uh, further rambling, let's move on to this week's character discussion. It's back this week. Last week we just, we talked about book seven and things relating to it, and now we're going going to continue to alternate. And this week is back to the character discussion, and it's Lucius Malfoy. Just a little bit, inf- just a little bit of information about Mr. Lucius. He's 43 years old. He was born in 1954. He is, of course, a Slytherin house. He's a Death Eater who is very skilled in the dark arts. According to Voldemort, Lucius always took the head in Muggle torture, something at which he undoubtedly excelled. Luce- Lucius is also an expert at manipulating people. Am I the only? Am I the only one who used to call him Lucius? I, I did, did too. too. Yeah. Oh no, I, I do it all the time. Yeah. Lucius Malfoy has white blonde hair and cold gray eyes. His face is very pale and pointed. Lucius is a wealthy man who uses his wealth to influence people. He is arrogant, calculating, and used to getting his own way at any cost. Of course, he's a pureblood, and the Malfoy heritage goes way back. In terms of the Harry Potter books, his first mention was in Sorcerer's Stone, Chapter 5, which we've already been over, and his first appearance didn't actually happen until Chamber of Secrets in... uh, Nocturne Alley. This information comes from MuggleNet's Encyclopedia, which part of which this article was written by Laura. Ooh. Oh. oh, yeah. I remember that now. I'd forgotten I'd done that. <laughs> cool. So we have a series of questions that we want to talk about. 
The first one being, was Lucius the prime influence in the ministry's belief on beliefs on Voldemort returning? Because we all know that he, him and Cornelius Fudge were like two peas, two peas in a pod. And if he really wanted to, he could use his influence to say, Fudge, you know Dumbledore's way out there. What do you guys think? I think that it's um, entirely possible that he is um, kind of another one of uh, Fudge's puppet masters and the fact that he sits there and tells him what he thinks Fudge needs to believe in order to benefit um, his and Voldemort's cause. And I think that he probably had a huge hand in Fudge's blatant um, denial that Voldemort had returned. True. I think he was yeah. a uh, he was a factor in it, but I don't think he was the sole reason why Fudge was right. Fudge was also in denial, just in general. Because, exactly, he was. Yeah, because he didn't. I agree. I don't think Fudge needed much mm, help. He didn't. He didn't choose to recognize the threat that was there. It's because he exactly. didn't have to deal. He's with sort it. of a ditz. But Fudge listens to whatever anyone tells him. Not necessarily. Well, Not necessarily. Listen to it because, no, if that was the case, then he would have believed that what Dumbledore was Dumbledore, saying. exactly. No, but at the time, he had started... Dumbledore is a different case. Yeah, he'd started having um, his own feelings of dislike towards Dumbledore at that time. And he also was spending more well, time but, around but Lucius. But the point is, if you think about it, okay, this is the most, the most evil wizard there has been in you know, since Grindelwald, before Grindelwald, the past century, they said. Okay, would you really want him returning on your watch and having to be held having to be held accountable for it? For example, at the opening of Half-Blood Prince, we see where Fudge sort of, it all comes back to bite him because he has to go to the Muggle Minister, say, the bridge wasn't taken out, it was done by, it wasn't taken out by a storm, it was done by giants and stuff like that. Or, mm-hmm. well, wasn't it? Yeah. Of course. Yeah, so... On top of the fact that he doesn't want to deal with it, he's got Lucius sitting behind him saying, oh, Dumbledore's wrong. So I think that he probably had a much larger impact than we probably could have imagined at the time. Well, yeah, and especially since, you know, Draco's always boasting about how his father is friends at the Ministry or whatever. So that's true, yeah. That can always help out. We didn't really see much of Lucius in Book 6. I mean, he was he even there at Hogwarts or do you – I don't think he was, was he? No. So, well, I think his whole purpose in book six was <clears throat> at the very beginning. Right. Um, when he's mentioned. Mm-hmm. So do you think that, do you think he's going to play an important role in book seven or a role at all? Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Without doubt. I don't, I don't know I, about I think he's going to get the role. axe. Yeah, I think so as well. I mean, I don't know about a big role concerning... Um, the final outcome of the story, but I do think that we are definitely going to find out what his fate is. It would be kind of pointless if, you know, we had this lead up from all of the books, him getting thrown into prison, finding out that Voldemort is ticked off at him enough to assign his son a task that could ultimate, ultimately right. end up, you know, in his death and then not have anything happen to him in the seventh right. book. Mm-hmm. I, I feel it may just be an afterthought, though. You know, towards the end where, where Joe's wrapping all of it up, she'll say... Well, see, the reason yeah. why I wouldn't think that is because of the way they developed him as... A bad guy? A bad guy, exactly. Harry despises him almost as much as he despises Malfoy, Malfoy and uh, Voldemort. So from, from the beginning, too. Exactly. So just a build-up to that tends to make me think that she's going to at least show him getting the axe or 
his role in the whole right. uh, battle. That's definitely true. And something that we mentioned with the first question about him influencing Fudge is that Lucius appears well prior to it being exposed that he was a Death Eater and him getting expo- him getting sent to Azkaban. He really had a lot of sway and power in the in the magical community. And in book three, we saw that he was a school governor, or book two, excuse me, that he was a school governor, and he led to like the first signs of political corruption within the ministry and all these things. And how do you think that somebody like Lucius, Lucius would become a, a school governor? I think that someone like Lucius would become a school governor in the same way that um, corrupt people do in real life. Because of course, yeah. I actually... Where I live, we have a man whose name I will not mention, who everybody sees as this very, he's just this great guy and all this other stuff. And he's involved in all these different county activities, but he's really a big jerk. And it's like, no one wants to believe it and no one wants to admit to it, but he's really mean to people and they just don't want to see it. And it's just because people don't want to admit that someone that is seen as so saintly is so, actually yeah. a bad person. Right. Because <laughs> he has this, he has a perception that, you know, he's doing, he does his best to live up to as a respectable man. But, you know, of course, there's the people who realize, who see him for what he really is, which is a scumbag. And it's mm-hmm. kind of hard to uh, tell those people no when, when the time comes. Especially since, you know, he could be torturing your family for votes or, <laughs> or whatever just to become on, be a part of the school's governor, school governor's mm-hmm. board. Well, we saw it, um, I think it was either at the end of Goblet of Fire or sometime in Order of the Phoenix, when one of Fudge's defenses for the Malfoys uh, was they donate to countless charities. And people do not want to believe that someone who is, say, donating to a good cause, mm-hmm. they can't they can't sit there and say, you know, I don't they don't want to believe that that person could be bad right? because and it's almost like it's, is, it's dirty money. Right. This is kind of funny that, that you know, last week I continually rehashed the, <laughs> the terrorism parallel, but something that's really interesting is that Osama bin Laden has donated literally millions upon millions of do- dollars to Islamic charities in the Middle East, which goes mm-hmm. to show that, you know, even just because you donate money or whatever, there still could be corruption there. Oh, of course, yeah. Well, and I mean, Osama bin Laden was trained by um, America. Exactly. We trained him and the Wizarding World trained Voldemort. So, I mean, you see countless, I'm not sure that they're intentional parallels, but you see, you do see a lot of connections with the corruption in government, um, not stating anything specific, however. Yeah, we've seen how Lucius has been how he is politically in terms of Cornelius Fudge and his position and abusing his position on the governor's board. But as a parent, he seems to be a vicious father, especially towards Draco. Do you guys have any idea why he's so hard on Draco? Well, yeah, he wants Draco to be the best. I mean, isn't that the signs of, like, every parent who wants their child to be the best? They're really rough on them, and if you get a bad grade, you're grounded for weeks. And I can draw that connection to people who live around me. Like, their parents see they get one bad grade, and you're grounded, or you lose your cell phone, or iPod, or whatever. And by Absolutely, bad grade, yeah. I mean, like, a C. A B. <laughs> or even a B, yeah. It's rough, so I think that's why. Yeah, that, that does explain why he would be so hard on him. Well, to cut in, I think he also wants a suitable heir. He didn't have any other children, so this is his one shot to protect the Malfoy fortune and fame and all 
and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I agree with that so. 100%. He doesn't want Draco to just be yeah. the wayward son, no matter how good his grades are. So he has to keep the tight leash. Yeah, that's true. He's that's also true. making sure that Draco believes in what he believes so that he can continue that legacy. That's that. I think he's accomplished that. Do you think that, I mean, we've obviously seen some faltering on Draco's part. Um, do you think that maybe from a young age, Draco exhibited some kind of rebellious nature towards Lucius, and that's why he's so hard on well, him? Well, I think it was in uh, Sorcerer's Stone, or maybe, maybe it was just the movie, but either in the movie or the book, we, we Jake, Draco says that he's going to bully his father. That was in – yeah, it was in the book actually. He was in a bully, yeah. going to bully his father into buying him a broom. So it seems like there's might have always been a continuous power struggle between the two, and that may lead may have led to why Lucius, the more powerful of the two, is being so controlling and so hard on his son. Which is interesting because then that means that he feels threatened by Draco. Yeah, that's true. Hmm. So could that mean he knows something about Draco that we don't know yet? I just think that I mean Draco's not stupid. We know that he's not, and I think that Lucius sees that in his son. And I think above anything, he fears his heir, you know, going to the good side or not being an active participant, you know, in Voldemort's inner circle. So he has to give him what he wants, and he has to have respect for him. What if? What if Draco ends up killing his father in the end? I could see that happening. You know, because you know, throughout the books, there's always been people who kill their fathers, like Voldemort killing his dad and. Barty Crouch Jr. killing his dad. I don't know. I'm just saying that maybe Draco will finally be fed up with all of his dad's crap and just... Yeah, but you have to remember Draco's hesitation at trying to kill Dumbledore. Right, but that's because he, he's the only person that Voldemort's ever feared. He, I mean, I'd be, ter- I'd be terrified too. I mean, even, even though he didn't have a wand on him, Dumbledore's very powerful and that would be... I'd be scared. <laughs> but still, can't you can't you agree with the fact that um, there are people who do get brought up by bad parents and throughout the rest of their lives, just because that person is their parent, they can't turn them away ever? So I can almost see Draco being too scared of his father, even after he's grown up and even after everything has happened and, you know, whether or not he's proven himself. I could see him just always being having this kind of irrational fear of Lucius. That's true. However, I think by book seven, he'll have had enough time to build up the resentment towards his father for putting him in the situation where, you know, he had to flee with Snape after not being able to kill Dumbledore and having Snape to do it for him. And I think there will at least be a big confrontation between the two of them, no matter what side Draco ends up being on. Right, but looking back on the earlier books... We talked really a little bit earlier in the, in the discussion about how Lucius has sort of become um, – he has sort of become a, one of uh, – not – excuse me, Fudge has become one of Lucius's puppets and basically he has a lot of influence in the, mystery, in the ministry. And it's important to bring up that especially in books three and four where we see Fudge station dementors around, uh, around the building who are, who are known for their loyalty to Voldemort – Around Hogwarts, and to bring them in, and, and to bring one with him for protection against Barty Crouch Jr. It seems to me like Lucius is another one is another one of Fudge's puppet masters. After all, who else would want to make sure that the only witness 
that Crouch Jr. couldn't testify. And it makes sense that, because we know in book four, the mentor sweeps in, sucks his soul out, and that's the end of it. You know that they wanted to make sure they have absolutely all the information extracted from him. Because imagine how vital of a, of a witness that Marty Crouch Jr. could have been. Because it doesn't almost make you think that Fudge could be evil, just out of the sheer fact that um, Crouch, Crouch Jr., he he was involved in this elaborate plan to steal Harry Potter, and he he can know what the Dark Lord's doing, what his next move is, and it just seems stupid to me to kill him. I don't think Fudge is evil. I think he is ignorant, and I think that he's incompetent. I don't think he had any clue yeah, I don't what he think was he's doing evil when either. he brought the Dementor in with him. And do you I think, think that Lucius is the reason that he did it, though? Yes, I think the... he is. I think he yes. absolutely is, because if they had been able to make Crouch Jr. testify then everything would have been out in the open so much earlier. And I can completely 100% see Lucius saying, you know, he's a dangerous Death Eater. You need to take this Dementor in with you. And who better for a Dementor to obey but a Death Eater who had been in Voldemort's inner circle to say, suck out his soul the minute you get in there. Mm-hmm. That's definitely true. And we've we've continually seen Lucius's uh, impact in, in terms of the ministry for example, another tie that could possibly be made. Oh, in book five, Umbridge mentions that she she passed regulation two years ago at the time of Order of the Phoenix, making it nearly impossible for werewolves to find work. And this is right right around when Snape let it slip to the Slytherin students that Lupin is a werewolf. All this is going on while Lucius is trying to have Buckbeak executed for school safety. Perhaps um, Dolores Umbridge wasn't quite as independent with all of regulations and decrees as she would like us to think. So what do you guys think? Do you think that it's possible that Lucius pretty much told Umbridge, hey, this might be a good idea to, to make these regulations? I think that he definitely had a hand in some of the uh, things that she did throughout the course of book five. Yes, well, see, definitely. the thing is, is I don't. I think you're giving him a little too much credit, though. Even on the account of Fudge, I don't think he was the sole purpose or sole reason why Fudge did what he did. You have to remember, Fudge is a political figure, and as a political figure, you're also taking pressure from your people. And the people don't want to believe that Voldemort is alive again. Yeah, but the people also don't want to believe that Lucius Malfoy is Exactly, but I think he planted the seed, but he didn't... He wasn't the sole reason. I don't know. I think Lucius definitely took advantage of the fact that Fudge can be used as a pawn so easily. I mean, he's, he's... he's like a pawn in a place of power. It's really scary. As much as we were talking about the about the the character biography for Lucius Malfoy, how he's very manipulating and he's very cool and calculating in the moves that he makes. Well, well, that's what I'm saying. He's calculated, but you have to remember, even when there is political corruption, the person who's doing the corrupt the corrupting is usually very discreet. He's planting seeds and he's, you know, letting people run with these ideas but he's not physically manipulating because when it is found out that they were wrong he would be the person that would get the attention they would yeah that, that's true too kevin brings up a good point so so what i'm saying is that mm-hmm. i think that lucius planted seeds around the ministry but i do not think that 
he was the soul saying yeah exactly and another another incident that happened in book five was we saw that the two dementors showed up at privet drive and umbridge took all the credit for it do you think lucius could have played a role in that also i think we're i think we might be accusing saying, him yeah. of too much we know he's a bad guy but i don't know it makes if it makes sense to blame all the bad things that have happened on that one person do you guys think there's any connection though I think he made many charitable donations to organizations and people other than organized charities. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, that I could definitely agree with. Um, I can't say that I'm 100% either way on um, Lucius having had a hand in the Dementors coming to Privet Drive. I think it all really depends on how much... um, attention Dementors would have paid to a ministry official because we really don't know um, how good their their reasoning process is. I mean, can they um, tell the difference between someone who is not on the bad side, but they're not necessarily good, or do they just see it in a very black and white way, like, you're not a Death Eater, therefore I don't obey you? Um, but, yeah, I'm really not 100% on that, so. If I remember correctly, in Prisoner of Azkaban, uh, Dumbledore made some sort of a speech where uh, they would go after anyone, so you shouldn't give them a reason to. So I don't think they discriminate very much. Yeah, that's definitely true. Yeah, that's true, but is that just in the case of, um, you know, generally going after people? Because it seems to me that they kind of um, sway with who's in power yeah, at the time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Whether or not they agree with them at not or not. They, they ha- You have to remember, they have also, to be... That's definitely true. You have to give them some benefit in order for them to obey you. That's the sole reason why they were at mm-hmm. Azkaban, because you're giving them something to free feed people. off. Yeah, exactly. You you give them people, and they stay there. Mm-hmm. But when Voldemort came back into power, he was able to provide more people, an entire so, population. <laughs> exactly. So obviously, they swayed with him. I don't think it's. I do not think it's, you know, them... I think they discriminate based upon that. They're not discriminating based upon, you know, anything other than that. They don't distinguish whether you're a Death Eater or not. They distinguish whether you can provide what they want. Yeah. Right. Whether you have benefits for them. That makes sense. Another decision that Umbridge made in Order of the Phoenix was to uh, sack Sybil Trelawney. And do you guys think that it's possible that this was a setup influenced by Lucius to retrieve the prophecy? And it, it would make sense because Dumbledore is very adamant about Trelawney at least getting to stay at Hogwarts for the rest of the year. Any ideas? That's something that I feel pretty strongly on because it just seems like too much of a coincidence that at the beginning of the book, Draco is going on about how his father is trying to get regulations passed within the ministry to get certain teachers sacked. And then at the end of the year, conveniently, it's the one the woman who provided oh, the prophecy yeah. about Harry. Yeah, um, as for Umbridge knowing why she was sacking Trelawney, I'm not sure um, that she would be in on that because I don't think that she is evil in the sense of being a Death Eater. Like Sirius said, the world is not separated into good people and Death Eaters. Yeah. Um, 
There's but still I, a gray area. Yeah, there is. There definitely is. And I think that um, this theory might support the fact that at one point in time, Snape did tell Voldemort who the person giving the prophecy was. Now, that doesn't necessarily define whether he's good or evil, because he could have done that at any time. That's definitely true. Another thing is, Lucius appears to be one of, well, he, at one time at least, he was one of the higher-ranking Death Eaters in Voldemort's circle. Do you still think that he was really faithful to Voldemort? And it appears that he may have his own agenda for power. What do you guys think? I agree with what Bellatrix said in the beginning of the sixth book, that um, if he were more loyal, he would have went to Azkaban for Voldemort. Yeah, that's that's really good. That's a that, Yeah, I like that. That's really good evidence. And I've always thought that Lucius is in it for his own personal gain, just because of how he's constantly over at the ministry trying to get people to listen to what he says, and how he's, you know, constantly pushing his opinion off on others, and, you know, threatening that he's going to curse certain people's families if they don't vote to keep, um, or vote to, you know, kick Dumbledore out of the school. Um, not to mention the fact that he claimed he was, you know, under the Imperius curse, at the time that he was in Voldemort's inner circle, and then all of a sudden Voldemort comes back, and he's like, oh, no, I made that up. So I think... I never denounced the old ways. Yes, I think that he's definitely in it for his own gain. Absolutely. That, that really does make sense. How do you guys think Jason Isaac fits the role of Lucius Malfoy? When, I w- when we were in New York City for the Goblet of Fire premiere, after I walked out of the movie, he was actually right down the stairs, and so I had a chance to... Sort of mingle with him, and well, actually, Sue and John yeah, were hugging him. Sue ran up there and threw her threw her arms around him, and Aww. and gave her a big gave him a big kiss on the cheek. But I think he's, I think Jason Isaacs is definitely a good guy, and I think that he does the role of Lucius mm-hmm. extremely well. Yeah, I really enjoyed his role in The Patriot. I thought that was a great film, and I can't remember what part he played exactly but he was one of the he was one of the bad guys and i thought he was the best part of that movie really yeah yeah he, he was really good that was a great film i really think that there are certain actors within the harry potter movies particularly the adult actors who really just have these characters down and they're exactly as i imagine them and jason isaacs is absolutely one of those actors whenever i saw him in the trailer for chamber of secrets I about died of excitement. I was like, this is Lucius. This is definitely who he is. And I was so pumped to go see that movie because of that. And he absolutely lived up to my expectations. Same here. Okay. I think that wraps up our character discussion for this week. This this segment will be back in two weeks. I don't know what we're doing next week. Andrew, we'll have to fill you. I know. We're going to have a party. We're having a party. We're 41. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to the two-way mirror for... Some of these points concerning Lucius. Now changing pace a bit, it's time for everybody's favorite segment, Spy on Sparts. If you recall last week's show, each week Emerson decides not to answer his phone. We're going to reveal a digit of his phone number. Last week's digit was two. Let's see if Mr. Sparts is around this week. Oh gosh, this is so exciting. I I know, I can't contain my excitement. Excitement. I can't even talk. I'm so jittery. I can't even say it. Oh, I think I'm gonna pee my pants. Oh my god. Come on, Emerson. Stop making me 
Uh oh. Oh. Big mistake. That's his voicemail for all of you who don't Big know. Big mistake. Right. One. Time for the second, second number. Second digit. Uh oh. Uh oh. <laughs> we have a we have a call from Mr. Sparts. Hello. 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 Speak up, dude. I can barely hear you. I'm inside of the building. Oh, really? What are you doing? I'm at the Hyatt Indianapolis. For what? Uh, see Aaron. Oh, what? See Aaron. Oh. Aw. By the way, you're on MuggleCast right now. We're spying on Sparts. <laughs> yeah, right. No, I'm dead serious. There's this, <laughs> there's this new segment we're doing where each week you don't answer your phone we reveal a digit of your phone number. And so... Really? Yeah, last week, last week we gave out the two. <laughs> and so... And we, we already gave out the one, so and then you called back. <laughs> so maybe we'll edit that out, but... So what are you doing right now? You're, so you're visiting <laughs> old Aaron? That's actually a pretty good idea. It's great, yeah. yeah isn't, that, isn't that an awesome I segment? Know, I don't think I have my phone off, so you're out of luck. Ah, uh, well, last week you didn't, and... You, just wait. Like, I'll off. Okay, dude. I'll talk to you later. This... Right. He that liked Emerson, our idea. That's his debut. On, that's, hey. that's, his, that's his MuggleCast debut. I just my life, guys. My, my life is now complete. <laughs> that Emerson has gave up his approval for our <laughs> segment. Oh. Spy on Sports is done. <laughs> we always thought he didn't like it. That's why we did yeah. it. <laughs> so that was that was another wonderful Spy on Sports. Well, we just threw a lot of analysis at you with old Lucius, 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 Lucius Malfoy. Okay. <laughs> well, y'all ready for some more? Loquacious. Loquacious? Lucius? Uh, no. You're not? Okay. okay. We're moving on to our chapter-by-chapter chapter analysis. This week is chapter 14 of Sorcerer's Stone. So the chapter opens up with Hermione nagging Harry and Ron to get studying for their exams um, and then one day in the library, they spot Hagrid looking around for what we would assume to be books. Uh, and he tells them to keep... Hagrid doesn't know how to read. Well, that's <laughs> what I was going to say. That was one of my points. I don't think it was ever said Hagrid couldn't read. Well, let's get to that. Was it... Is my mind being plagued by the movie again? Or did he also say in the well, book that uh, I can't spell it? Well, just because you can't spell Voldemort doesn't mean you can't read. I mean, he... Well, you should. Well, no, <laughs> That's but... a pretty big name. Yeah, but you have to remember, not many not many people uh, write down Voldemort. They write down... He who must not be named. You know. You know who. <laughs> you know who, or it, well, stuff like that. So not many people have seen the spelling of his name. I don't know how to spell it. <laughs> well, he, he had a cake for Harry, and it said, Happy Birthday Harry, on it. So, I mean, he must be able to read. Just because he's not a good speller. And he made it oh, to what? True. His second year of school? Yeah, third year. Third year, actually. He would have yeah. failed yeah. if he didn't know how to read. Yeah, that's that's true. Yeah. Jess brings up a good point. Hagrid. Brownie points for Jess. Keeper that. of keys and games <laughs> at Hogwarts. <laughs> so, um, so he tells them to keep quiet about the Sister Stone, and then they see an egg behind his back, and then Ron goes over to... You know, investigate where he was, and they realize he was in the dragon section looking for dragon books. Well, the trio goes to, and anyone feel free to stop me. Um, well, something caught my eye, and I it was around at least page two thirty one in my book. This is a um, a 
What do you call it? It's not the hardcover. Paperback? Ebook. Oh, yeah. <laughs> paperback? Yes, paperback, sorry. You don't know what to call it. Yeah. Well, I don't read books that often. No, actually. I don't. <laughs> okay. Uh, it was a joke. It was a joke. Okay. Um. Well, well, what caught my eye was um, Hagrid was sort of like bragging about how much Dumbledore trusted him. And I realized that we did a lot of discussion about who or what could have Dumbledore done to leave a message for Harry? Is it possible that he left it with Hagrid? The reason I say it is because he... Hagrid... He did trust Hagrid with the keys. He did trust Hagrid with Fluffy. But at the same time, especially at that moment when we see that um, Hermione can just sort of butter Hagrid up and get him to tell her things, kind of how easily manipulated he can be into giving information. Well, well, I was thinking about that, but my thoughts on that was, was who would think that Hagrid would hold that information? That's true. Um, I could... like, sort of like obscurity. They, like... It's secure because no one would ever think that Dumbledore would give that information to Hagrid. The first person they would think is, you know, McGonagall or That's something true. like that. I could see it happening. My only grievance with it is I think it's sort of along the lines of, like, you know, who would expect to have a Horcrux in Dumbledore's office? It's like no one really would, but it just – it almost seems too easy. I don't want Book 7 to be easy. <laughs> I don't know, maybe I'm just mean like that, but I don't want Harry to just be able to walk around and have people say, oh, by the way, here you go. Well, by easy, do you mean detailed and in-depth? Because, I mean, if Joe is planning on making this book shorter than, what did she say? Half-Blood Prince or Order of the Phoenix? Yeah, that's still a pretty reasonable Order length, Order and it can Phoenix. still be detailed. Do you mean convenient? Yeah. Yeah, I don't, do I don't, want, it to, I don't want to be too convenient. Yeah, but I mean, a lot of things can be easy, but... It just seems like if, you know... It, it just seems like if too many people who are close to Harry know what's going on, I don't know, it just sort of seems like that's going beyond what Dumbledore wanted, mm, because, well, yeah, yeah, of course you can trust Hagrid, and of course you can trust McGonagall, but, like, when you have a good, you know, a really good group of friends, the more people you tell a secret, the more chance you have of it getting out. Not out of, you know, any act of malice, but it does happen. So, I just think that a lot of stuff is going to be kept between the trio, and of course there will, there will be some outsider information, but... Well, well, that brings me to my next question. Why did Dumbledore trust Hagrid with this information when he's so gullible? Because he said he trusted Hagrid with his life. He trusted Hagrid with the Sorcerer's Stone. So why, why couldn't he trust him with this? But that, that's exactly why I'm saying. Why would he if he's so gullible? If Dumbledore knew Hagrid was so gullible... Why would he trust him with um, this information? Well, he continues to trust Hagrid throughout the entire series. He trusted Hagrid delivering Harry to the Dursleys that night. Hagrid is sort of – he may be a, a bit you know a I, bit gullible, but it's all it's – all, it's the relationship is based on trust. But do you, see, do you see my point? I mean like throughout this chapter, he's – like they're constantly like boosting his ego to get stuff out of him. And the whole point of the chapter is because – you know, he was gullible enough to get this dragon for information. So so the questions arise, why is he so trusted when 
it's obvious he is like a Can't leaking. Can't trusted. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I guess um, the one thing that you can say for the fact that Hagrid leaked information to Quirrell was he was drunk. And I'm kind of hoping and assuming that that was a lesson that he learned and it never happened again. Um, I, I think that one of the key points in Chapter 1 of Sorcerer's Stone is where McGonagall says, are you sure you can trust Hagrid, Hagrid with something as important as this? And I think the key word there being important, that when something, it, for instance, if it were important that Hagrid not tell, say, someone like Draco about um, stuff relating to the Sorcerer's Stone, he never would. But people like the trio, who obviously aren't going to run off and get him in trouble, I think he feels like he can be a little bit more open with them. And I, I think Dumbledore knows that. And I think he just realizes that Hagrid is on his side. And, you know, even if you've got someone who has some pretty obvious character flaws, you're not going to get anywhere if you don't have people on your side. That's, yeah, that's true. However, this feeds my theory that Dumbledore is an idiot and that Dumbledore is evil and that Dumbledore deserved to fall off the astronomy tower um, dead because... Never um, insult Albus Dumbledore in front of me. Well, uh, you know... <laughs> well, I've, K's. I've never liked Dumbledore. I just don't like Dumbledore. I think he's a fraud. I think he oh deserved everything gosh. he got. And who are you? You know, I think almost in a way that he sets up Harry into these situations so he can't take the blame for whatever whatever happens. I am on the verge of crying. I can't believe you would say this. You're like you're like the you're like the National Enquirer on MuggleCast. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. I cried. It was so sad. I know, I laughed and took pictures while Laura cried over Dumbledore's death. Speaking of crying, did oh, anyone geez. watch the OC last night? <laughs> oh, Marissa died. Oh god! My sister was paralyzed for ten minutes. Did you watch it with her? I was like, get a was grip. She like, oh my no. god. No, I look into her room and she's like on her bed face down. I'm like, what's the problem? What happened on the show? And she's like, Marissa died. I'm like, who? Who cares? Oh my Why? god, Andrew. <laughs> Marissa died. Marissa died. <laughs> Ben, I thought you used to watch that show. I do. I, I just didn't watch it this past week because I've been busy. But it's busy. a season finale. Yeah, I figured that was why we didn't do the show yesterday. I figured <gasps> you were going to be too busy watching the OC. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I was watching it. No. Yeah. Ben had academic awards. Well, so the trio goes to Hagrid's hut to get more answers out of him concerning uh, Nicholas Flamel and the Switcher Stone. And later on, Hagrid sends a note via head, Hedwig that uh, the egg is hatching that he has. So after it hatches, Malfoy is caught spying in on the event and runs back to the castle once they catch a glimpse of him. Now, the first thing that we wanted to bring up was how do the owls work? Because how is Hagrid able to send Hedwig? It's kind of a tongue twister. To Harry, like, could he have just spotted him in the sky or what? Perhaps he was in the Allery. Yeah, I figured it would have been from the Allery. Yeah. But would Hagrid have time to run up to the Allery and grab Hedwig and and then mail a letter to him in the school? Hedwig might be eating there. Get in the mouse. 
But where was Harry again when this happened? He was in the Great Hall when he got the letter, I think. Yeah, so... Yeah, so why couldn't Hagrid have gone into the Great Hall and got him rather than going up to the Allery? Because he didn't want to take a chance of anyone overhearing. The egg is hatching. I guess. But no one would know what they were talking about. I don't know, it just seems kind of strange. Because if it's, if it's hatching, do you have time yeah, to run upstairs? Yeah, this is also and, the same guy who... You no, know, send the letter. Hagrid has made it very clear that he's interested in having a dragon, and then he goes into the school library and checks out books on dragons. So, clearly he... That's true. He doesn't He's always He's not a very rational thinker. Though I do love him dearly. So, Laura, you wanted to also bring up a point here concerning... Well, whenever um, the trio are in the cabin with Hagrid and, you know, the egg is hatching and everything... Yes. All of a sudden, Hagrid looks out the window and Draco's there. And my first reaction when I first read the book was, oh god, Hagrid's dead. But then Draco found out about the dragon and he didn't spill. And what I didn't get about that was why he wouldn't want to get Hagrid into trouble immediately. And the more I thought about it, it seemed like it was possible that he might have told Lucius, who told him to keep quiet, because he was planning something within the ministry to get Hagrid in trouble, which would tie directly into the discussion about his very obvious um, influences on Fudge and other people within the ministry. So I wanted to see what you guys thought of that. I think that's a good theory. I don't think Big Daddy Malfoy likes animals, and I think he considers giants animals. And, you know, the fact that Hagrid is a half-giant, anything to get him sacked would be perfect. Well, either that or manipulation. It is a way to uh, blackmail someone, no? Yeah. I mean, I guess it depends on if he had anything he needed to blackmail them for. It didn't seem like he did, because all he, you know, all he did was kind of hang it over Ron's head in the hospital wing. That's yeah. pretty much it. Yeah. He does seem kind of like an instant gratification person, so I do have to question his yeah, motives. Definitely. It's true, yeah, definitely. I don't know. And while we're discussing this scene, I'd like to point out that in the movie, they have Norbert breathing fire right away. This is incorrect. According to Fantastic Beasts, um, Norwegian Ridgebacks cannot breathe fire until about one to three months, though they are the earliest fire breathers of the Oh, strike. but yes, 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 yes. Hollywood. Yes. Yeah. It was for comedic Hollywood. value. It was to get everyone to laugh. We all had a good chuckle over it. Have you I don't like laughing. I'm mean. <laughs> <laughs> no, okay. It seems like in every in every movie they have to they have their certain areas in each movie where they have kind of this pattern of doing things that just I don't think are that funny. Like wrong. It, well, no. Well, in Goblet of Fire, that whole thing with the beard and Madame X seemed like eating something out of it. That was kind of icky. Well, that was hot. <laughs> the dragon. But it seems like they always kind of try to make. They always kind of try to make Hagrid look stupid. It almost seems like, I don't know, they try to turn him into more comic relief than I really see him being in the books. Well, I I think Hagrid's a lovable, funny guy. I think so, too. Yeah, but they're just trying to set up a a comedic character. You always have to have some goober in 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 a film that... Is always some comic relief. Now, Harry gets the idea to ask Charlie if he'd like to take Norbert to Romania to be bred because 
the trio is pushing Hagrid to get rid of him. They eventually get Charlie to take him back to Romania, and his friends come and pick the dragon up. Then everything's fine and dandy, everything went smooth. And then Harry and Hermione are walking back, and Filch catches them coming back to their dormitories in the middle of the night. Because they forgot the invisibility cloak back up on the tower. Oh no. And that's where the chapter leaves off. Jess, didn't you want to bring up something? I think that Dumbledore knew about Norbert. And this is another point on my theory that Dumbledore is an idiot because, you know, knowing about Norbert, he should, I don't know how he would have managed it, but he should have found a way to keep Norbert. Um, He would have been useful. Dumbledore discovered um, the 12 uses for dragon's blood, so he could have uh, done some interesting experiments with Norbert. You really don't like Dumbledore, do you? No, I don't. And also, this is, he couldn't possibly have foreseen this, but it would have been, um, Norbert would have been useful in book six when they came to the cave to go for the locket Horcrux because, um, he could have <laughs> breathed his magical fire breath and warded off the Inferi, so. Can I ask you a question? Yes. <laughs> Dumbledore has a lot of contacts, right? Yes. Why does he, he just get a dragon himself. Because then he could blame Hagrid for the dragon. Yeah, exactly. It wouldn't yeah, be his yeah, fault. Okay. <laughs> Conspiracy theorist. Exactly. Oh, it's all Dumbledore's fault now. Yeah, it's always Dumbledore's <laughs> Well, that wraps up this week's chapter-by-chapter analysis. Next week, we'll be talking about chapter 15 of Sorcerer's Stone. I don't have the book open, so I can't tell you the title. Let me How open. could you not it's know, Ben? You're not a real fan. It's a secret. It's They'll find the out what it's called next Forbidden week. Forbidden Forest. Oh, sorry. I just ruined it. It's the Forbidden Forest. <laughs> we only got, uh, what, three more chapters? Three yep. more chapters, and then we're done chapter Ooh, by chapter. Yay! On to we're just burning through Folks. these books. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Now is the time for a segment that we debuted last week called Give Me a Butterbeer. This is where I go on a rant about something that's going on in the Harry Potter community and say, just give me a butterbeer. But before we dive into this week's discussion, I'd first like to thank everyone who gave me feedback on the segment. I really hope that everyone who's listening enjoys this. I don't. I was trying to swallow. I was trying to swallow, but I couldn't. Many of you requested that this week that I bring up the ongoing feud between Harry Potter and and Christianity. So, let's do that. Harry Haters Unite, Harry Potter versus Christianity. Book burns date back several centuries. In modern times, banning has become the new burn. Copies of Harry Potter books have literally been ripped off the shelves in many schools and libraries across America, claiming that the books are encouraging the occult and evil in our youth. Just last week in Gwinnett County, Georgia, not too far from Mugglecast Zone Laura, there was an attempt to remove Harry from the library. Luckily enough, the school board ruled in favor of the books. Many of the Harry haters out there disliked the Boy Wizard because of his sheer popularity. Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone hit the shores of America in 1998 after taking the United Kingdom by storm. It wasn't too long but until Sorcerer's Stone took up residence on the New York Times bestseller list. When something grows to be as popular as Harry Potter, some people, particularly those who are religious, begin to question why the growth happened so rapidly. Richard Bain's book, Harry Potter and the Bible, explained the HP phenomenon as a product of the occult. Baines goes on to question the ethics of Harry, claiming that the books show morally confusing messages presented throughout the series. 
The main reason that Christians claim that Harry came from the occult is because of the way that J.K. Rowling thought him up. We all know that in 1990, on a train ride, Joe said that the idea just came to her, and then Harry Potter was born. Skeptics believe that Harry Potter is not a mere creation of J.K.'s imagination, but rather the occult making its way into Joe's mind. The author of Harry Potter and the Bible questions Joe's beliefs concerning magic. In an online interview, Joe said that when it comes to the kind of magic that appears in her series, she does not believe in magic in that way. This caused opponents to jump all over her, crying witchcraft. Have no fear. Joe was not referring to the occult. The type of magic that Joe is referring to is a type that exists in the minds and the hearts of the children who read her series. The magic of seeing millions of fans lining up at midnight awaiting the release of her new book. This is in no way evil magic spawning from the occult. The ethics of Harry Potter are continually questioned throughout Harry Potter and the Bible. The author makes the claim that the use of swear words like hell and damn that we see in Goblet of Fire are inappropriate for the audience that Joe is supposed to be writing for. However, the readers of the Harry Potter books have grown up along with Harry. It's preposterous for us to suggest that by the time a child is 10 or 11 years old, they haven't already heard the words hell and damn. The words add to the story in a way that oftentimes is overlooked. Sometimes, in order to express the severity of a situation, it is necessary to use words like that. It is hard to question the real lessons of the Harry Potter books. It's a classic story between good and evil, which, which demonstrates friendship, caring, and the power of love. Calling Joe's work unethical couldn't be further from the truth. It's an insult to those of us who read the books and to Joe for the years of work she's put formulating the series to convey those, message, those messages. The controversy over Harry Potter is indeed going to continue. I'm not condemning parents who don't want to their kids to read the books. That's a personal decision that you have to make as guardians. But attempting to censor books from youth who want to read them is a travesty and denying kids a prime educational opportunity. And most importantly, the love for reading. Jamie Fletcher said it best. Even to the present day, we often condemn books that were written to fight the very things we claim to be fighting. Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn is often cited as being racist when it was written against slavery and racism. Joe's books are about to fight against evil, not an attempt to spread it throughout the world. So, give me a butterbeer. That was awesome. I completely agree 100%, and that was just really cool. <laughs> Thank you for yeah. that. But, um, you know, Ben, in response to where you're talking about uh, cursing in the Harry Potter books... I just wanted to touch on how, with MuggleCast, we've sort of made an unspoken rule that we don't curse on the show because it's in respect to the parents who let their kids listen to the show because the internet is such, you know, it's a dangerous place and parents are unsure. And by not cursing on the show and not using, you know, Hound Dam, oh, oh no, uh, it attracts more people. But we don't need to curse on the show. So that's why we don't do it but like you were saying with the books and it does happen occasionally it does it does sometimes and we'll it, edit it out sometimes just let it go once in a while but i just wanted to say that you're right like with MuggleCast, it's not necessary we don't need them to bring a point across but like in the books when you're working with these characters who are adults then yes it is necessary. well i did want to make a point um have you noted do any of you have a friend who does not swear at all. Yes. Yes. Have you ever heard that person swear? Sure. I mean, every now and then. Because when they swear, when they swear, it makes impact. Mm -hmm. And I think the same analogy is true for the books. 
It's not often that J.K. Rowling uses such words, but when she does, it adds a lot of impact. Right, and I'd like to think um, – hold on one second. got to look at the name on the box, the person who sent me this book. Cause I, I used to have a copy of it, but then I got off when I read it. Hold on. Thanks, <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to uh, Katie – from I think California she sent us a bunch of books a while back and when I was writing up this week's give me a butter beer I looked I was I needed some some of the material from people who helped cause the controversy over Harry Potter and she sent me sent me a copy of Harry Potter in the Bible and it's actually a so there's some interesting stuff in this book and she left me a personal note in here saying if this doesn't make your blood boil I don't know what will but it's quite interesting all the same and it's completely true. This author went as far to, to rip off like the the chat, um, like some of the format and the formatting in the book, and it just really it, it can really begin to irritate you because some of the things that some of the points he tries to make just really get under your skin. And the, the here's what it says: harmless fantasy or dangerous fascination. Harry Potter and the Bible: the menace behind the magic. Then at the bottom it says. Not approved by J.K. Rowling. <laughs> well, I'm I'm sorry. Well, no, I'm sorry, oh, Mr. Really? Baines. <laughs> Your book is not receiving endorsement from Uncle Cass. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Too late. And you know something else that I'll point out about swearing in the books: how parents, particularly religious parents, um, do not like the use of "damn" and "hell" occasionally in the books. Those words are used in the Bible. <laughs> Exactly. And, and I mean, children read the Bible, and it's just – I personally do not see why sheltering children from what the world is like and what they will hear in the world is doing them any favors. Um, but at the same time, like you, Ben, I'm not going to question a parent's right to say what their child should and should not be allowed to read. Right. And there's also a nice little parallel with – between Harry Potter and Huckleberry Finn, like I said, that Harry Huckleberry Finn is oftentimes cited as being racist. When Twain actually wrote that book to be against slavery and racism, just be, just because of the sheer fact that throughout the book there's some racial slurs that are used, and just because Harry Potter uses J.K. Rowling uses hell and damn in in her books, it's not because she's doing it for the sake of cussing. That would like that would like be saying that anytime anybody swears, it's because the occult influence them to, which really doesn't make sense. There's no denying that those words are a, are a part of adult conversation. And when it happened in the in the book, I recall was when uh, was when Crumb was attempting to torture Cedric Diggory in the maze, and he said, "What the hell are you doing?" And what do you, what do you expect to say? What the heck are you doing? That doesn't make sense in the book. It's not real world. Mm -hmm. And that's what Joe is trying to convey. Well, and with books like Huckleberry so. Finn and, for instance, To Kill a Mockingbird, if you don't use the type of language that was commonly used at that time, it takes it's away not historically from the, accurate. Right, and it takes it's away from accurate, the message. It takes away from the story. Mm -hmm. It does. Absolutely. Well, I hope um, – also. Also, another point. Um, I know you brought up the point of there being witchcraft in Harry Potter and stuff like that. Um, I believe a couple – it's probably a couple years ago now. Um, I'm Catholic myself, and the Roman Catholic Church actually okayed Harry Potter. And the reason why is – I think it was a very good point – 
just like any book, you can't take the book literally. Mm-hmm. Right. You need to you need to view its moral aspects and Harry Potter itself right. You know, represents right. a lot of good morals. So nobody's nobody's forming a belief system off of Harry Potter. <laughs> And I think the same controversy is going on now with stuff like the Da Vinci Code and stuff like that because people are taking it literally. Yeah, that's so. It's fiction, you know, guys. Yeah, fiction. unnecessary. <laughs> exactly. There's a reason, you know. There, it's a good story in the end, and just because it touches on things that could be potentially um, religious in nature doesn't mean that she ever meant it to be. Well, let me just say one last thing. The Da Vinci Code controversy, you know, it's been getting a lot of press, and someone brought up, it might have been Tom Hanks, uh, he was being interviewed, you know, well, why is there so much controversy? And he said, well, people have to realize it's just a movie. It's not It's not bring down trying church, to exactly, bring yeah. a statement across. It's not saying, yeah, it's not trying to say this is what it means. This is, we're doing this yeah, movie because, just... you know, blah, blah, blah. It's the same thing with Harry Potter. Harry Potter is not trying to... To say, it, trying to imply witchcraft is evil and Harry, you know, it's it's just not. It doesn't make sense. Exactly. Yeah. And right, it's yeah, an entertaining I, 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 story. Right. That's what it's it not. Is. It's not trying to turn all the readers into little witches and wi- wizards. Exactly. I think the church said that we don't want people confused, and so long as they're educated to that point that it's fiction, then. There's no problem. Mm-hmm. It is it is under fantasy in uh, bookstores, so definitely. So, folks, that's two butter beers down the hatch. I think I'm gonna say that from now on. If you want to leave any feedback for me, send it, send an email to Ben at staff.mugglenet.com or by clicking contact us on MuggleCast.com and selecting my name from the feedback form. I appreciate any feedback on this segment that you are willing to give. This is probably going to be one of the more controversial topics that we're going to discuss in this segment. Remember, send in, send in some of your ideas. I may discuss them. For example, this one was – I got about 15 to 20 emails about – for feedback about the segment. And a lot I, I, over half of them suggested that I talk about Harry Potter and Christianity this week. So I, did, I do indeed use user suggestions. So please continue to send them. So let's move on to this week's voicemails. We have a few of them for you. Let's go to the first voicemail concerning Voldemort's effects internationally. Hi, I'm Kyle from Connecticut, and um, just want to say, um, Toga Flute would put a snow to the sleeve, probably also fluffy. Um, Voldemort is all powerful in Europe, and we know that there must, we know that he's ravished all of Europe. Does you think he'd also be in? North America and other continents as well? And would there also be other um, governments from uh, for other nations as well? You see in the Quidditch World Cup, the Wizards and Witches from America, would that mean anything? Um, thank you. Love the show. Bye. I couldn't agree more that there are indeed... Uh, that, I mean, that Voldemort has indeed spread to other continents, especially North America... And a parallel that I'd like to draw here is there was a gang that be- that got its roots in Southern California. You may have heard of them called the MS-13, and now they've spread to an international scale. And 
in order for Voldemort to take the next big step, it's necessary for him to be able to spread his empire throughout the world and not just on, well, on throughout Great Britain. Is there much fear for him right now? Like, I, I'm sure he's known, but do you think people in North America or in the other continent... <coughs> Other continents are like shaking in their boots. I really don't think it's I as think big as the promise. I can see it happening. I think it's exactly the same as any other um, kind of terrorist leader in the real world. I mean, people here, like we've stated before, are afraid of Osama bin Laden and what his followers can do. So I think that it's perfectly rational to assume that Voldemort would we would be well known to wizarding communities all over the world. It just so happens that. Is there the same fear? Because, like, with Osama bin Laden, for example, like, people in... He attacked the U.S. Right, and he's threatened the U.S. multiple times, like Voldemort has threatened Europe, but he hasn't threatened, say, uh, Brazil. (laughs) I mean, But, see, that's the thing. Voldemort doesn't... He doesn't target certain countries. He's targeting everyone. That's that's the point. He does not like muggles. He does not like muggle-borns. He is strictly um, obsessed with having his pure-blood society. So I really think that he's a threat everywhere. It just so happens that the books are based in England, and we just tend to see more of the European perspective on it. That's definitely true. You know my wonderful terrorism analogy? I just love it. Um, (laughs) there's, There's also a parallel... You know how Osama bin Laden, it's believed that he had – well, there have been found out that he has terrorist al-Qaeda cells within the United States. There was one that was broken up in Buffalo a few years ago, Buffalo, New York. So it makes sense for Voldemort to extend his empire in the same way and you know, probably have some people out in the Americas. Because what if America tries to intervene in the magical war that's going on in Great Britain? I know that's not likely to happen in the book. It's going to be kept – you know, mm-hmm. all in the British family there, but I'm just saying that if you think about it logically, it makes sense for him to have these people out there. Definitely, and I do think. Oh, go ahead. No, Laura. go ahead, Jess. I've oh, like, I was just going to say that I do think he's expanded, but from the glimpse that I saw of the other wizarding communities, they seem sort of passive, where they don't really keep up with what's going on in other wizarding communities, other than you know things like sports. You know, to, to use that kind of. Maybe like yeah, soccer, you know, football, whatever, those kind of analogies. Yeah, that's really valid because that's kind of how it is with us too. I mean, a lot of people don't know that certain other countries exist. Um, what was it? They said some percentage of school children could not find Iraq on a, on a map. So, I mean, I think that there's definitely um, some influence there in the fact that people sort of tend to pick and choose what they pay attention to. But I think Voldemort's kind of a you know a threat to everybody who's involved in the wizarding community. I guess it just seems like he's such a big name in Europe that he would at least be a threat everywhere else. That's definitely true. I'm sure they fear him, but not as much fear as there is in England, especially among Hogwarts and Harry's closest friends mm-hmm. and family. Well, not family, but. Yeah. Well, that, that was a good question. Thanks for sending that in. Hold the next voicemail. Hi, MuggleCast. It's Lauren from New Jersey. I recently finished reading The Da Vinci Code, and while reading, it listed the grandmasters of the Priori of Scion, and at number eight was Nicholas Flamel. I did some research, and Flamel's believed to have made the Philosopher's Stone, and his tomb is empty, 
something that was rated, others think he achieved immortality with the stone. Why do you think J.K. Rowling would take a muggle who already existed and use him as a character in Sorcerer's Stone? Thanks. Coincidentally enough, this book that I was reading about Harry Potter and the Bible, it mentioned that J.K. Rowling has an immense knowledge about history and archaeology, not archaeology, but just alchemy and things like that. And I think it's important to consider that the fact that he was an actual person makes it makes him the perfect fit for the book. And I don't see anything beyond that. I don't know if he's actually a muggle because couldn't he be a wizard? Well, I would think right, that it, within the book, he's a wizard. Yeah. yeah. But within the books. Right. I'm just saying that in real, in real life, you know, the, the real Nicholas. I just Mel thought was, it was convenient for wizard, the storyline. Yeah. And it just fit perfectly. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for submitting your question. Let's play the next voicemail. This one's about reading the books in different languages. Hey guys, this is Isabel from Ecuador, and I was wondering if any of you guys have read the books in a different language. Well, I know I've read the books in Spanish, and I think I've noted a little difference. And I was wondering if you have read the, the books in Spanish, do you think that they lost, we can call it a little of its magic in the process of translation? What you show? Bye. Como se llama? Mi llamo Andrew. Let's go around the table first. Um, I have a copy of Sorcerer's Stone in Spanish. I got it as a, I think it was a Christmas gift, just as a little like, hey, check this out. You have it in Spanish. Cool. I never re- actually read it. It's over my head. How about you guys? No tango leer in espanol. Ooh. I have not read the book in Spanish. <laughs> Laura and Jess. Laura, what about you? <laughs> I um I do have um I believe the first and third paperbacks in Spanish and um I just thought it was really interesting that she brought that up and I have a couple things I want to say about it after everyone else goes. So Jess? I've only read them in English, but like Laura, I also have like a couple thoughts on it. I don't think the magic is lost. The story is still there. Um some of the humor, I think, maybe has trouble translating where they use uh, metaphors and, like, phrases that are native to English. Like, um, I don't know, the cat's in with the pixies now or or something like that. I did read an article that said those types of things were the hardest to translate. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that um, one of the main things that is lost, and not just in the English to Spanish translation, but in pretty much every translation, um, is the fact that every culture has... Um, have you know they have phrases and jokes that are unique to that, and it's so hard to translate that and actually have it make sense. Um, on top of the fact that um, sometimes you just get translators who do weird, random things, and there's no explanation as to why. Um, in the first Spanish edition, for some reason, Trevor is a turtle, oh. and there's absolutely no reason for doing that. I don't know why they would make him a turtle. I just, it didn't seem like there there was any benefit to be had to it. Um, <laughs> and another thing that I noticed was when they translate the Marauders' nicknames in the third one, Mooney's name is Lunatico. And when I see that, the first thing that pops into my mind is Lunatic. Yeah. And it's like, <laughs> what? what? And I mean, obviously, you've got the connection with Luna, meaning Moon. But I just, to me, when I read that, it just seems like they're calling him crazy i don't know i just 
thought it was weird. But I mean, you do you do still have the well, story. Well, he does kind of go crazy. That's true. That's true. He does. It's a frenzy induced by the moon. Yeah, so that, it does make sense. That does make sense, actually. But you know, I think that you still have the original story, but um. I think that it's possible that a little bit of personality can be lost along the way with the characters just because they are British and, you know, to have it make sense to people in other cultures, you can't have them at, you know, acting British or using, you know, British terms and stuff because it wouldn't make sense. I mean, these translations can also give additional details away. For example, uh, R.A.B. I can't remember what language it was, but um, they needed to change one of the initials and when it was trans translated back to English, it was Regulus. So, it was sort of like a giveaway. It's very interesting. Thank you for submitting your question. Hope we answered it very well. Muy bueno. (laughs) (laughs) Hey guys, this is Andrew from Chicago. I love the show. And I was just rereading book three and wondering about the possibility of Dementors playing a role in the destruction of a Horcrux. If they can suck the soul out of a person, why not be able to suck a piece of a soul out of an object? This would also provide an interesting ending for, to book seven for the uh, Harry is a Horcrux shippers. Just wondering what you guys thought. Thanks. Love the show. Bye. Terrible name. Oh, I love that name. It <laughs> is a terrible name. You know, Andrew means manly. There's your fun fact for the day. <laughs> <laughs> but Ben means goober. Oh, <laughs> Andrew, thank mean? you for submitting your... It means son of my right hand. Does it? What? Andrew, th- yep. I'm it doesn't make serious. sense. Well, look up, look up... It means like Jesus. You're Jesus? He was the son of God's right hand. You're the son of Jesus? Oh, God. That's what they call Ben's them. Jesus. I thought Jesus never... Mm. No, never mind. I am your savior. Okay. I think that it, it might make sense. I think that it might make sense for Dementors to be able to suck a soul out of an object. Mm. I don't know. The only reason I disagree with it is the fact that Dementors are drawn to people because of their fear and their emotions. And I don't think inanimate objects can have... Yeah, a Horcrux seems dormant to me until it's used. So I don't think the Dementors would be able to find it. Yeah, I changed my mind. It doesn't make sense. <laughs> so what What if Harry was a Horcrux? Didn't Joe say Harry wasn't a Horcrux? Yeah, he's, she said that. What am I? Yeah. That's okay, fine. then that that's not going to play a role. Then. Can people be Horcruxes? That's just, I mean... An it, inanimate object. To me, it yeah. almost seemed like it'd have to be something that... Like a coin, something you carry in your pocket. Yeah. Well, that wraps up this week's voicemail discussion. Remember, call one two one eight twenty magic to leave your voicemail. Or Skype the username MuggleCast. And finally, you can send it via an attachment to MuggleCast at staff.mugglenet.com. We appreciate any feedback and voicemails that you send to us. Let's move on to MuggleCast's favorite segment, where we bring up a topic each week and say what our favorite is. This week, it is our favorite educational degree. Thanks to Kelly for sending this in. Can Andrew, I, do you want to start? Yeah, I'll, I'll start off. Um, and I regrettably am not sure if this is the last one. How many decrees were there? Is it 24? A lot. 28. 28? Okay, then this was the last one. But my favorite educational de- decree given out by the one and only Umbridge would have to be the one which ordered all student organizations, societies, teams, groups, and clubs disbanded. In other words... 
no clubs, no activities. I'm pretty sure no Quidditch, right? So it, it was a breaking point. It was you were taking away what was one of the biggest, greatest aspects of it. It Quidditch, Quidditch. You actually took away Quidditch. It was just a school now. It was you. You go to school, you learn, that's it. There was nothing for students to do, and this just blew their minds. And that was one of those decrees that absolutely upset me. I like the Quibbler one. Any student found in possession of the magazine, the Quibbler, will be expelled. This is Educational Decree Number 27, signed by Dolores Jane Umbridge. This is my favorite because I think it's funny that despite the fact that you said anyone found in possession is going to be expelled, the Weasley twins held a big put a big copy of it up, and everyone still had it. It was just, you know, on the Hogwarts underground, which I really liked. Laura, Jess, well, one of you? Um, I'd have to agree with you on that. I really liked that one because I am anti-censorship, and I just love the way that the students reacted to that and how they were just sort of like, uh, yeah, right, and they just went and did what they wanted to do anyway, and that's how I think people should react in all situations when they're being told... Not in all situations. No, when they're being told that they are not allowed to view certain material, I think that that is censorship, and you should be allowed to have access to all information. You should. My favorite is uh, number 29, the one Filch mentioned but was never put into action. Uh we didn't really learn exactly what it entailed, but Filch said he would be able to hang people up by their ankles, and I just liked seeing uh, Filch's reaction to that. <laughs> Jess, you would like that, wouldn't you? <laughs> well, that wraps up another edition of MuggleCast. Andrew, Andrew, does this mean we're over the hill? What hill? Are we over the hill? Are you saying we're only going through 80 episodes? I don't know. Uh, I don't know, guys. What's going to happen in another uh, 40? Will we be no. Will we be through chapter by chapter? We might want to kill each we other have... by the time we get to 80. <laughs> Once again, I am Ben Shane. I'm Andrew Seams. <laughs> I'm Laura Thompson. I'm Kevin Steck. Kevin had to leave a little early, everyone. And I'm Jess Custine. Yay! Join us Jess. next week. Thanks for joining us, Jess. Yeah, thanks for joining us, Jess. You're welcome. Join anytime. us next week. Where we'll, be, where we'll be discussing all sorts of new Harry Potter-related materials. I'm sorry we didn't get the Dobby socks, like I said. We I don't remember. Oh, okay. Good night, everybody. Bye. Bye. Good morning. Or, or late evening. My name is Captain Murphy and I live in Dublin in Ireland and uh, I just want you to know that I just bought my MuggleCast t-shirt there a few days ago and I am waiting for it to arrive and I just can't wait until it arrives and yeah, I love this show, listen to it every week, keep up the good work, bye! Muggle Night, you rock my Hi, MuggleCast. I just like to say that I love, I absolutely love MuggleCast. And keep up the great work. I love MuggleCast, okay? Bye. Hey, this is Brian of Virginia. Hey, Micah and all the rest of y'all. Um, want to say thanks for taking my mind off the repetitive actions of work. I listen to you almost every day, uh, a couple times over and over again. Um, want to say thanks a lot, and uh, peace. 
J.K. Rowling, Stephen King, and John Irving will be holding a press conference on August 1st in New York City a few hours prior to the first benefit for... And he also has a 10-foot sausage in his pocket, so... In his pants? <laughs> I was trying not pocket. to think dirty his about pocket that. pocket Sorry. And as Emerson likes to say... Oh, my God. Well, what? <laughs> okay, it's too far, Jess. No, he actually did that say is that. That's a direct Emerson quote. Tonight's podcast is rated PG for mild <laughs> Jess. Sexual mild innuendos. Jess. <laughs> this is Andrew Sims' little brother, Ryan Sims. Here is an Andrew Sims fact. Did you know Andrew Sims cannot whistle? Join us next week for another exciting fact about Andrew Sims. Keepers of keys and games at Hogwarts.